How are we all doing? You had a, had a great week, I hope. Uh, there's some sermon notes available at the back if you would like to avail yourselves of those. I'm actually using a uh, PowerPoint slide today, which is uh, a little unusual, uh, but I think because the, the passage we're going to deal with today is reasonably complex, this might, uh, this might help in your understanding. For the last uh, few weeks, as Raf has stated, we've uh, been thinking through uh, the concept of our ongoing Christian walk. It's something we're going to continue to do through the next uh, eight or so weeks as well. The first week we we uh, were confronted with uh, the model church of the New Testament. That's the way I described it, the church of Ephesus. And I say that's a model church because uh, the beloved apostle Paul, he taught them for three years. He poured his heart and soul into this church and it was a vibrant community. Uh, A vibrant community in such a way that as the gospel captured their hearts, one of the most significant things they did early in in their church life is they... They had a book barbecue. You can read that in Acts chapter 19. You see, they were in the middle of a culture that was full of pagan idolatry and worship of Artemis, a, a god of the people at that time. And to divorce themselves completely from their previous lifestyle, they, they bought their books and they burnt them in the public space. Now, to have a book in AD 50 was a rather luxurious thing. You couldn't go down to a a normal bookstore and purchase, right? No printing press, no uh, availability to the populace. A book was something that was handwritten and was very expensive. And and Acts 19 tells us that the value of the books that were burned were some 50,000 pieces of silver at that time. An extraordinary amount of money. But what the point is, is that that these people's hearts was changed they were changed by the love of Christ and, and this was displayed in their action. But we, we looked at this church 40 years further on from the book of Revelation and we see this uh, sad uh, commentary that Christ said you've lost your first love. That zeal that was shown when you came to Christ you have lost. It's been replaced by a formality. It's been replaced by a a legalism. Your church is lifeless and cold because you've lost your first love. And Christ laid it on the line. He said, you need to repent. You need to turn back and and dwell on the things that are are precious. Dwell on the things that are Christ-centered. So that was our first week together. Last week we looked at our walk from two perspectives. The walk of each individual one of us before we came to faith in Christ. A walk that was dead. Completely separate from God. Until God made us alive in Christ through his grace. What a tremendous story. God Grace broke open our dead natures and made us alive. 
And not only does God's grace break open our dead natures and the, and the first fruits of salvation, but also he has prepared works for us to do. He has prepared a life for us to walk in, a life for us to live. And our progressive sanctification, as we call it, is fueled by God's grace also. The same grace that saves you and I is the same grace that fuels our life for our ongoing walk with him. This week we're going to continue to look at this topic and how should we walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Now I'm sure if I ask each of you individually, that is a, a desire of our hearts, right? If we placed our faith and trust in Christ... Surely we have a heart to delight in him, a heart to serve him, a heart to be guided by him. And this is what we're going to look at today. But we're going to do it a little bit differently today. We're going to do it from the book of Colossians. We're taking a detour out of the book of Ephesians. We'll be back in Ephesians next week and for the balance of the series predominantly but we're going to look at Colossians and try to get to an understanding of what should stir our affections, what should stir our hearts to to walk in a manner that's worthy of following Christ in a manner that's pleasing to him. Because you see, one of the fundamental things in our Christian life is what we know about God. What we know about God should result in the way we walk and the way we live. Knowledge always precedes practice. And that's one of the messages we will receive from Ephesians this morning. So, from Colossians. So, open your Bibles. We'll go to Colossians chapter 1. Read the text. I'm reading from the NIV this morning. And, uh, and we'll get into the study of God's Word together. So Colossians 1, we're going to pick up Paul's prayer in verse 9 and go through to verse 14. So this is what Paul prays for the Colossian believers. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son, the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, what we have here is uh, a church in the place of Colossae, that's uh, highlighted by this blue circle there. This is modern-day Turkey. 
And Colossi sits some 120 miles from the coast, 180 kilometres, 190 kilometres. And in AD 200, AD 300, two or three hundred years before Christ, this was a, a thriving city. But uh, by the time of uh, Paul's time, AD 50, AD 60, the, the, the city wasn't as thriving as the cities around about it. It wasn't as thriving as Ephesus, wasn't as thriving as Laodicea. Uh, the reason being, as you can see by the red marks on this particular map, they're the Roman roads and the Roman roads started to bypass Colossae. So they started missing out on uh, the economic prosperity that other cities had because travellers from east to west weren't travelling through Colossae. Its nearest neighbour was Laodicea, 15 kilometres to the northwest, with Ephesus 190k to the west. The population by all accounts of this particular place was uh, quite diverse. And it was a city that was particularly renowned for its uh, fine wool products, textiles. And uh, especially a dark red wool known as Colossian wool. It's a really good marketing name, isn't it? Red wool from Colossi. So yeah, that's what we call it, Colossian wool. Uh, but that the, So the culture and the diversity and the economics around the particular city was fairly agriculturally based. Uh, that's the type of city, unlike Laodicea, unlike Ephesus, which was more commercially based or more aligned to uh, worship of idols, etc. And as you can see by the map, as travellers went from east to west, uh, this particular place provided quite a melting pot for philosophical ideas and different worldviews. And if you read through this particular letter to uh, to Colossae, you'll see some of that. See, Paul didn't find, uh, he didn't, he wasn't the church planter here. This church was planted by a name, by na- a guy by the name of Epaphras. We meet him in the, the start of uh, chapter one. Epaphras was a companion of Paul, and Epaphras was likely with Paul in Ephesus. So he was a convert from Ephesus. He moved inland to Colossae and planted the church. And Epaphras had come to Paul and given him a, a report on how the church was doing. And as we read this particular letter, I think there's two things that were going on in the church at Colossae. There was a relapse into the pagan ways of thinking and acting. If you grab chapter 3 of of this letter, you'll see that. A relapse into the pagan ways of thinking and acting. And predominantly chapter 2 tells us about an acceptance of unorthodox teaching. So I think there are the two things that are really going on here in Colossae a relapse into the secular ways around about them and an acceptance of false teaching, an acceptance of teaching that is not uh, pure in its nature or aligned to the doctrine of Christ particularly. If you look at the, the letter of Colossians, it has a very high Christology. 
It talks about Christ in a way and upholds Christ as the supreme one. And you know, he, he, at the end of chapter 1, he comes to these wonderful verses and says, it's him we will proclaim. And uh, so, so Christ, uh, Paul actually lifts Christ to this position to try and realign their thinking around what they're doing in the culture and around what they're doing with the false teachers. So I guess his purpose in writing is to provide a, a bit of a correction, right? It's very pastoral. He, he, he pours his heart out, even though he didn't know these people well, but he loved the Epaphras and, and he was concerned about his ministry. And he wants to correct error. Error against false doctrine and error against compromising against belief. At the start of the letter, he starts with this wonderful prayer, which we have read. And we have, firstly, as uh, you can just see the, 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 the pastoral nature of Paul in this. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We've got this, this heart of Paul and Epaphras. You know, he's received some good news about what's going on in the church. He's also seen, received some news about the two particular issues that are, seem to be highlighted. And his immediate response is to pour out to God in prayer on behalf of these people. And it's an immediate intercession. There's no, okay, I'm going to sit down here for about six months, think about this issue, and then pray. He understands the church is in dire straits because of the compromise that's going on, because of the false teaching, and and he pleads to God, if you like, on the Colossians' behalf. And also note that he did not cease praying. One of the marvellous things about Paul as you read through these letters and through his communication in the New Testament is his heart for prayer. His heart to continually pray for those he comes in contact with, those he disciples, those he mentors, those he uh, is partnering with. So there's a real immediacy here. What's the primary content of the prayer? I think the primary content come, comes in the, the next uh, part of the verse. He's asking that they will be filled uh, with the knowledge of God's will for with all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. He's seeking God to fill these people with the knowledge about him. He's seeking God because he understands that this is a divine act of God and only God can provide full insight of his will. I think it's an important thing to understand. Only God can provide full insight of his will. 
And what Paul has in mind here is not some particular or special direction for one's life. I think you need to understand this in the context of this. He's not thinking about a dot will. Okay, He's not thinking about, okay, Nathan and Julie, you really, really need whatever it might be. It might be a, a, a home, it might be uh, good health, it might be a myriad of, of physical things, but Paul's not concerned about that. He's not concerned about the specifics. He's concerned about a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ. He's asking God to, to reveal to these folks a deeper and abiding understanding of Christ and all that that means. As he rolls on through chapter 1, you see that Christ is all in all in the universe. He, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of uncreation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, all thrones or dominions or power. So, so Christ is the centre of the universe. And this is part of Paul's prayer. Fill the Colossian believers with that reality. That Christ is all and all. A deep and abiding understanding of who Christ is. And not only an intellectual understanding, because he talks about wisdom and understanding. Fill them with wisdom and understanding which comes from the Spirit. Now that's an excellent translation. And the NIV is about one of the only translations that uses that line that this wisdom and understanding comes from God himself from the spirit from the Holy Spirit the third person of the triune God he's the one who reveals wisdom and understanding you see in Greek times there were under Aristotle there were three virtues considered really important wisdom understanding and prudence they were the three chief uh, intellectual virtues. We see through Scripture, we see through the Old Testament that these two virtues, wisdom and understanding, appeared together often. Appeared together often. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, these two words are there, they just come out to us, especially when we're reading the wisdom literature. You know, the wisdom literature, that's Psalms, that's Proverbs, that's Ecclesiastes, that's Song of Solomon. That's what we know as wisdom literature. Because we, you know that the Bible's made up of different types of genre, right? Different types of writing styles. Those middle books which I just mentioned, Job, Psalms, Songs of Solomon, Proverbs, they're wisdom literature. They're Poetry, they, and in there particularly we see wisdom and understanding uh, being related as truth that comes from God, and uh, they, they, they're very well married together. I'll give you an example. Let's just go back. Let's go back to uh, one Chronicles, so you can see this. So one Chronicles. Chapter 22. 
This is David praying for Solomon. Uh, 1 Chronicles 22 verse 11. Now my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. So the charge was given to Solomon to go and build the temple. David couldn't. He was a man of war. And uh, so David is praying for Solomon. And listen to the, the prayer. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding or wisdom and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper, etc. If you move over to Second Chronicles chapter 1, you'll see Solomon's testimony here. Second Chronicles chapter 1 verse 9. This is Solomon after David's death crying out to God. O Lord God, let the word, let your word to David my father now be fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours which is so great? So Solomon understands the importance of wisdom and understanding or wisdom and knowledge. You see, these two virtues are given by the Spirit according to Paul in Colossians. In the same way they were given by God to David and to Solomon. And this given insight into the will of God as important as it is, is not an end in itself. So to have an intellectual understanding as important as it is, is not an end in itself. Because Paul here not only prays for a mental and attitudinal realignment, he wants their thinking to be right, and that's of primary importance, but he also knows that this knowledge and this understanding must transfer into behaviour. Must transfer into behaviour. It must transfer into practice. Our knowledge about God and what God has done and the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives us about that must always shape how we walk and how we live. And that's where he goes in the next part of the prayer. So let's uh, just look at that a little bit. So the purpose here, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. That's what spiritual wisdom and understanding is about. So that knowledge will go to practice and that will be driven by the Spirit in your life and you'll be worthy and pleasing to him in every way. So how does that look? You know, how does that look? 
you're filled with his divine filling, with the knowledge of God's will, and you have all this wisdom and understanding and or spiritual wisdom or wisdom that the Spirit gives. What should be the result? And Paul doesn't leave us high and dry here. He tells the Colossians what the result should be. And this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Because the result is stated in verse 10. That we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord or to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so how should this walk and how should this living be portrayed in our lives? This here is the key verb of the whole sentence. You know, we've been talking about walking in a manner that's worthy of the Lord for three weeks now. And for Paul here to the Colossians, he he focuses in and he wants to pick up this concept, this this biblical concept. It's an idiom from... From the Old Testament to walk, it's about walking a path of righteousness. You read Proverbs 2 and, and, and you see the contrast going, the righteous walk like this, the unrighteous walk like that. And Paul in, the, in many ways picks up that, that same sort of concept in this prayer. And he says, I want you to walk so this is what it will look like. You have the intended results to live a life worthy of the Lord and to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, but your lifestyle, how should your lifestyle or walk seek to please Him in every way? And He gives us four characteristics that show us a life of obedience, a life that lives by God's empowering grace. So as you open your Bibles, put a circle around these four things. Bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit. Growing in the knowledge of God. So bearing fruit, growing, being strengthened and giving joyful thanks. These four things are the the, the signs typical of any believer who is growing in their faith. Typical of any believer who is walking in a manner that is worthy. So the first one is bearing fruit. And you know, you've got to realise that this church was an agricultural, uh, in an agricultural environment. They understood what fruit bearing was. Who here is a gardener? One gardener. Do they all come to your garden to get vegetables? I was, um, I, I grew up in an orchard an apple, apple orchard back in New Zealand. And so I had a little bit to understand about what it meant to bear fruit, right? So when you have an apple tree, you just can't leave the apple tree in the ground to bear fruit. What happens if you did that? It would produce small fruit. It might not produce fruit at all because you haven't pruned it. You haven't tended to it. You haven't thinned out the apples on the bunch to allow them to grow. And uh, your fruit tree, if, if unattended, won't bear good fruit. And Paul is using this 
concept in relation to walking a life of obedience before God. He's saying, as a mark of your your walk, as a mark of your life, you should be bearing fruit. As a believer in Christ, you need to be bearing fruit. You should be yielding a harvest. And that happens because the Spirit of God shapes and refines us, prunes us, deals with the sin in our hearts, the ongoing stuff that we continually struggle with day in, day out. Why? So we can be fruit bearers. It's a sign of growth. Secondly, he talks about growing in the knowledge of God. We've talked about this. Our life always is a result of what we know about God. It's not what we feel about God, it's what we know about God. As followers of Christ, this is a a really important concept because I think this has been mirrored a lot inside evangelical Christianity. Where we chase after feelings. Folks, feelings don't grow you. The knowledge of God grows you. And this word here is actually what we know as another passive. So it means God is enabling you to grow in the knowledge of him. How does that happen? His spirit's within you. And this is an intensive growth based on wanting to know more about God and about his truth. So how do we know more about God and about his truth? I'll give you an idea. There's more knowledge and more truth in here than you and I in our human lives can ever understand. And God calls us to have this as our authority in our lives. We don't stand in authority over God's word. God's word is an authority for us in all things that pertain to life and godliness. And God through his spirit illuminates his word and causes growth. And that's a tremendous thing. As you read and you, you understand and you, and you think more about God, it is a growth process. I'm sure you've experienced that in your lives. Right? You know, when you, when you don't meet with fellow believers and don't get encouraged through God's word, what is it like? Not so great, is it? It becomes difficult. It becomes a difficult path to walk because God's word is not being illuminated because you tend to step away from God's word. You tend to go down your own track. So thirdly, what do we have? So we have bear fruit, we have grow in the knowledge of God and now be strengthened by God. And there's two results in this being strengthened by God. 
It means to be equipped with all the power or to be endowed with all capability. And it results in two fruit, if you like. When you are strengthened by God, you'll endure. Now let's face it, the Christian life is about endurance. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a hundred metre sprint. The Christian life is a marathon, folks. It's actually an ultra marathon for some of us. But one of the fruit of being strengthened by God is this endurance. And it's a resolute endurance. And this means that you endure under really difficult circumstances. You know, you see folks, you see fellow believers who have gone through the mill in many ways and you, you see their wonderful testimonies of God's faithfulness. You see their, them enduring resolutely. And that's God shaping them and strengthening them. Another type of endurance is a patient endurance. And a patient endurance is an endurance that does not retaliate. So the two fruit of the Spirit here is is, uh, a resolute endurance. That's how God strengthens us. He gives us the capacity to keep on going on even though our circumstances may be crumbling around about us. Because our circumstances aren't the issue. The issue is being filled with the knowledge of God. Because He is the one that is able. He is the one that provides. He is the one that that gives you strength to endure. He is the one that gives you patience and patient endurance not to retaliate. And fourthly, So we have bearing fruit, we have growing in the knowledge of God, we have being strengthened by God which results in endurance and we have giving thanks to the Lord. This is how our walk should be shaped. These are the marks of a a believer who walks well. The object of our thanks is clearly the triune God of the universe. And the object of our thanks is because of his saving work. You see, giving thanks should always imply what has been received has not been earned, but as a gift. And that's what these verses tell us here at the back end of this prayer. We thank God for he is qualified. Here, initially, Paul is saying, to the Colossian believers, he has qualified you to receive an inheritance. By extension to you and I, God has qualified us to receive an inheritance. How has that qualification occurred? Through the rescue or redemption or the deliverance from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light or the kingdom of Christ. He has provided redemption and forgiveness of sins. That's something worth giving thanks about. That's something to give thanks about. Firstly, we're qualified. Secondly, we have inheritance. We've been rescued. We've been delivered. 
It's interesting here too, just the words that are used towards the end about the domain of darkness and the kingdom of light. The domain of darkness is actually almost a temporal thing. It's the dominion of darkness as opposed to the kingdom of Christ, which is eternal. So what kind of lifestyle or walk is worthy of the Lord and seeks to please him in every way? There's a life that is fruitful, a life that continually grows through the empowering spirit of God. There's a life that is given strength by God to endure resolutely amidst life's difficult circumstances and display a a patient endurance that doesn't retaliate. It's a life that pours out thanks to God for his promised inheritance and his past salvation. So the natural question that arises after we read this prayer, a particular prayer to a particular people at a particular time, how does that apply to you and I? How do these these characteristics, these charges impact you and I today here in the northern suburbs of Melbourne? I think you can see that they apply in a remarkable way. An absolute remarkable way. Look, we celebrate Father's Day today. I'm going to challenge the fathers here and the grandfathers and the fathers-to-be. And when you have those, if God blesses you with little ones in your family, model your prayer around this for them. Model your prayer life around the fact that you want your children to grow in the knowledge of God. Model your prayer around the fact that you want your children to be filled with knowing and understanding God in a life-giving way. This is the greatest legacy we can ever leave our children. It's a faithful, obedient life that is modelled. And pointing them to Christ, pointing to them to the author and perfecter of salvation. You see here, we see God does the filling. God gives us the knowledge. God gives us understanding through His Spirit. Uh, through His Spirit, we are commanded to walk and to live a life that is worthy and seeks to please the Lord. That's our obligation, folks. That's the obligation of the cross. God does the growing. He doesn't leave us, He doesn't abandon us in our, in our pursuit to, to serve Him. God does the growing through empowering us through His Spirit. God does the strengthening. We get to bear fruit. We get to give thanks. We get to receive an inheritance and a redemption that is given to us by God. 
These truths are so essential for a, a, a follower of Christ. And I, I'm afraid that in today's culture we, we get blurred by other things. So I'm going to challenge you today to be drawn back to these essentials. These key things that will enable you to love Christ more deeply. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for this prayer that Paul penned many years ago to a church that needed encouragement, to a church that was fooling around with the philosophies of the world, to a church that was removing itself from the the truth of doctrine. And yet through this prayer, Paul aligned their thinking to be aligned with your thinking. His desire was for them to grow in the knowledge of you. And Father, it's our desire today that we are filled with your knowledge, that we grow, that we are strengthened, that we readily turn and give thanks, that we bear fruit all for your glory. Because Father, we know it's only by your hand of grace that we live and breathe. It's only by your hand of grace that we can pursue these virtues and characteristics in our life. Father, we pray that each one of us here will take some time today to reflect on these things and to seek your encouragement by your Spirit to walk in a manner worthy and pleasing to you. We pray these things in the powerful name of our risen Saviour and Lord. Amen.